sitting in the front row, like any good church boy would. And um, there was a guest speaker that night, and he preached a very clear gospel message, which I had heard before. And at the end, he gave a very clear and compelling call to action, call to respond to the gospel, which I had heard before. He even put a little something extra on it by saying this, there are 8,000 students on this campus at Bloomsburg University, and most of them don't know Jesus. But again, I had heard that before. But then, he looked right at the front row, and he said, what are you doing about it? I had never heard that before. And that day, the Lord helped me realize something. I wasn't doing anything. That's recognizing spiritual blindness. The Lord helped me to realize that night and during that entire year that my entire spiritual life was about me. And I had been blind to it. I needed to see the truth about who I was before I could see the truth about who Jesus is. As Thomas Watson well puts it, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The book of Isaiah, especially for the past few weeks, has been an increasing mix of bitter and sweet. God's people who, as punishment for turning away from him, have been given over to Babylon are sitting in captivity. But while they sit there, God is gently and firmly showing to them more and more that they cannot rescue themselves, but he has chosen them and they will be rescued. This week's text will simply push things a little further. And we're going to behold a God who calls blind and deaf people and is their past and present and future hope, but we're also going to behold a gruesome illustration. And it's about spiritual blindness. Just how hopeless it is to believe in anything else. And through all of that, I hope that you and I will both get a clearer view of our sin, but we will also get a clearer view of God's rescue plan brought to completion through his chosen servant, Jesus Christ. We are on page 389, if you're in your church Bibles. Everyone, though, we are in chapter 43 of Isaiah. And I'm going to start with point one, 
by reading verses 8 through 13. is God writing to his people in captivity. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear it and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? And if you were here last week, you shouldn't see much new information here. The only thing I think is made perhaps a little bit more clear is that prior to this, several weeks ago, God was speaking to the the coastland people, all of his enemies... And then, more recently, he examined his own people, Israel. And now, it seems as though he's just simply calling out everybody in verse 9. All the nations gather together, all the people. This blindness and deafness, in other words, applies to all people. This would be a profound thing for God's people to read. That they're still chosen, as we see here, but everyone is brought equally low to God. Everyone. Who can declare and show the former things, God says, perhaps rhetorically to all people? In other words, who is like God? So the ground is level. But yet there is a difference. Israel is separate in a way. Is it by their moral compass? No, they're blind and deaf. Have you ever given a compass to a blind person? It doesn't do anything. A compass does them no good at this point. They're that far gone. The difference is found in verse 10 between everybody else and God's chosen people. The only difference is that God chose them. Why? We're still in verse 10. Simply that God's people would know and believe and understand that God is who he says he is. He alone is God. And at the end of verse 10, no God was before me and no God comes after me. And verse 11 pushes that even further. Not just to remind us, the readers, that God is is God and he's powerful, but that God is a, a saving God. And beyond that, he's the only saving God. Verse 11, besides me, there is no savior. 
And what's God's people's role in all of this? It's verse 12. It's simply this. You witness. You watch. I'll simply conclude this brief section by asking a simple question. How can blind and deaf people even be witnesses? How can you witness something if you can't see? Again, it's only if one thing happens. If the God who created his people opens their eyes and ears. Behold our God who alone does this. To the one who made eyes and ears, this is no challenge. He simply restores them. He simply makes their eyes and ears do what they're supposed to do. And next, after he calls them to witness, he then walks his people again through his great plan. And along the way, he pauses to remind his people how much they've been dragging their feet the whole way. And that's point two where we're going to spend a little bit more time. And again, a lot of this is going to sound familiar, but bear with me. We'll dig a little bit deeper. Point two, behold our God who was, who is, was, and will be our hope. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but I'm going to start by reading verses 14 through 21. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One. And creator of Israel, your king, thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the ways of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, river in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Let's start with verse 14. For your sake, God says, I'm sending all down to Babylon, even the Chaldeans. This is simply God reminding them that his hand has moved once powerful people to wherever he wants. In this case, Babylon. Why? Verse 15. I am the Lord. His plan for his glory. But then... God reminds them of something in verse 16, which is a little bit of sweetness mixed in with the bitterness. The Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. And this language, even if you're pretty new to church, should take you back to the book of Exodus. 
where God delivered his people, making a way through the water. In other words, reader, remember who God is. He rescues, not just from Babylon. He's been rescuing. All those mighty horses and riders of Egypt in verse 17, those chariots, they were extinguished, quenched like a wick. But then in verse 18, God says, remember not those things. Wait, didn't you just remind us? This doesn't mean pretend they didn't happen. You've got to think like an Israel in Babylon to get this verse. Because at this point, you're convinced that God has left you and you're alone. And all the Babylonian gods are starting to make sense to you. And all those stories of Exodus are kind of seeming like folktales now. And so God says... Don't simply look backwards. They're not legends. God did those things and he's about to do something even bigger. That's verses 19 through 21. And I'll give you a brief list of what we just read. God will make a way in the wilderness God will make rivers in the desert, which, think about it, at the Red Sea, back in Exodus, God made a desert, dry land, where there was a river or a sea. So before, he removed something. But here, God is adding something. I'm going to make life from lifelessness. In verse 20, wild beasts will honor me. And in 21, water given to my chosen people to drink that they might honor me. Now that was the book of Exodus. God took a dead people and he made a nation out of them. And it is what God is doing in Babylon. He's rescuing his people again. But it's something more. Behold our God who doesn't just rescue from Egypt and rescue from Babylon. He's promising a new exodus. And there's even a hint at something more in the future here. When animals and untamed nature would actually be restored in their allegiance to God. And all this is a wonderful picture. And sadly, many preachers would stop at this point and they would close the book. Because God delivers us and isn't that great. And it is. But there's something else to consider as we look backwards And it's Israel's part in the story. I was watching the Prince of Egypt with my daughters the other day. I see some of you have watched the Prince of Egypt. 
You know, Moses stands up to Pharaoh and his magicians come out and they're like, by the power of Ra. And my daughters are like, boo! (laughs) It's great. And then the exodus happens and the waters part and God makes a way. And it's wonderful, isn't it? And the music swells and then they crossfade to Moses and he's walking down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the movie ends. Now I know the movie could only be so long. But what actually happens when Moses comes down the mountain after this deliverance? What has Israel done? Yeah. The people have taken the gold that God gave them from the plunder of Egypt and they have made a God out of it. And they've turned their backs on God. So God isn't just looking back to show them who he is. He's looking back to show them who they are. Look at verses 22 through 24. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings. Or honor me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings. Or weird you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money. Or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Because in Babylon, God's people completely gave up. They just stopped reading and they stopped offering sacrifices. They just kept laying sin after sin on the altar instead. But behold our God who even though they showed no improvement from Egypt to Babylon, he would not let them be extinguished like Egypt. Look at verses 25 through 28. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. God is still faithful to forgive even though Israel has not earned it or even asked for it. God gently reminds him in verse 26, remember me, fight with me, bring your case, we'll see. 
And then he blows the lid off the case in verse 27. God doesn't go back to Exodus. God goes back to Adam. Because rebellion didn't begin in Exodus. It began right after God made people. And it continued. And it continued. And it continued. And so God has given them the fruit of their labor. They began in sin and they never changed. But thankfully, neither has God. So here's what he's going to offer them in the future in exchange for nothing, their sin. Let's read 44, 1 through 8. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and my blessing upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another one will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself. By the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it, let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All God is saying here, and I will not elaborate for the sake of time, is that God is not simply allowing his people to survive. And that would be generous. He won't just lift them up out of the pit and then just let them there. In fact, they will have God's spirit given to them. And they will even have descendants who will call on the name of God. So, though they are continually deaf and blind. And though they have been from the beginning, God has been their hope. He is their hope in captivity. And he will continue to be their hope. Behold our God. And as verse 8 reminds us again, we are simply witnesses to that. But again, 
There's just a little bit more. Behold our God with me. A loving parent who doesn't just simply lift his people out of the ashes and rescue them from their sin. He actually teaches them what sin is at its very core. And that's your third point. Behold our gods who do the exact opposite. I'll read verses 9 through 20. And this is going to seem a little heady and there'll be a lot of characters and stuff. Bear with me, we're almost there. All who fashion idols are nothing and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith, pay attention to this guy, he takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. Then he drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter, pay attention to this guy, or girl maybe, I don't know, stretches a line. Oh no, he marks it out with a pencil. It's a he, sorry. (laughs) He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it out with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol for himself and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So we'll move quickly here through these. Verses 9 through 11, they just set the whole table for us. This this picture of sin and idol worship. Especially verse 9. Trusting in false gods is foolish. 
because neither the worshiper or the lowercase God being worshiped amount to anything. So both are worthless. But what we read is even worse is that they don't even know it. Sound like blindness? And the end result of this is verse 11, shame and terror. We presume when they meet God or when their eyes are opened. And that's the end of their story, so to speak. But the rest of it, their lives of these people don't look any better. In the following verse, we see the rest of the lives of these people that God is describing. So just think about two types of people. In verse 12, we see a man who works hard all day and gets hungry and he can't go a day without water, strong as he is, and he faints. And then implicitly, because it's his job, I imagine it begins again the next day. And then in verses 12 through 17, we have another man doing fantastic work. He's fashioning houses and he's building houses and he's chopping trees and he's making fires and he's eating from the fire and he's keeping warm and he's making novel little items that he then prays to to rescue him when he gets into trouble. And in those two brief caricatures, we don't just see the heart of sin, we see natural man. This, wrapped up in two illustrations, is everyone. Now, it just looks like two people working two jobs, and my guess is you probably want the second job. But in the first case... People toil day in and day out with no end in sight. And in the other case, it's people prospering, but look at what they're doing. They're using bodies which God gave them to do work with tools built from minerals that God gave them to chop down God's trees And then they're cooking food made from animals, made by God, to extend a life that is not theirs. And in both cases, neither one acknowledges God at all until it's too late. Verse 20 says it the best. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the heart of worshiping anything other than God. Because idols... When you look at this, they do the exact opposite of what God has been doing all along. 
They often feel great. They come disguised as good hard work and good food and warmth. But in the end, they keep us blind and deaf and we keep running back to them because we don't want to lose them. And they end up as ashes in our mouths for the simple reason that they are not God. They end, and so do the people that worship them. Friends, when you consider the people in these verses and you compare them with your life right now, is this what you behold? Endless toil, day in and day out. Moving from one thing to the next. Just trying to keep warm. When nobody's watching, is that you? Begging things to save you, which only lets you down time and time and time again. Maybe you keep coming here to this church and you smile and you're trying to praise God, but you can't do it because your mouth is full of ashes. Here's the good news. If you can see that this morning, if you can understand that, praise God, because your eyes are open, even if it's just a little bit. Behold your God with those eyes. But for most of the seven point five three billion people that walk this earth, the hell I just described is as good as life will ever get. What are you doing about that? Because if your eyes are open even just a little bit, you can do something you can be a witness. Because God didn't give up on Israel, though they were heading down that same path that perhaps you feel like you are on. In fact, if you read ahead, past the book of Isaiah, in the time of Nehemiah, after Israel is freed, Ezra and Nehemiah, two of God's prophets, Literally, take the people and stand them in the town square and they just read the Bible to them all day long. They read scripture. You know why? Because God's people completely forgot. But God starts there 
and he just starts reading scripture, his word to his people. And some eyes were open that day because God's plan will not be stopped. As he has proven to Israel before, God will rescue again. And as we push closer in Isaiah to the revelation of God's servant Jesus, let us then consider the reality that this rescue has come. That's why if you are among those here whose eyes are being opened or have been opened or they're just a little squinty, you can clearly see enough to praise God instead of running back to those idols because you can see them for who they are and you can see you for who you are but most importantly, you can see Jesus for who he is, the rescuer. But you can go to church your entire life and you can miss this. You can be warm with a full stomach, prospering and miss this. But then, perhaps like me, maybe one day you're sitting in a room far from home and one night God opens your eyes. So if that is you and your eyes are being opened or they're just open a little bit more, praise God and behold your God who rescues. So mankind hasn't done much in this passage. So what do you do for application? (laughs) Well, we're going to spend small group time fleshing out what idol worship is. So please stay for that. But for now, I'm just simply going to close by inviting us together to take a few moments in silent meditation. I'd like us, I'd like you, during this time, to ask the Lord to open your eyes just a little bit more and show you the idols of your heart. Maybe they're hidden. Maybe you don't even know exactly what they are. If you don't, if you're not sure what that means, I invite you to simply ask yourself this question. What am I afraid to lose? Because if it's not God, it's going to turn to ash anyway. Let's bow our heads and consider this. And then I'll close this in prayer while the worship team comes to close us. Let's bow our heads and meditate for a moment.
Dear God, our hearts are factories for idols. It's so easy to just want to feel warm or to fill our stomachs or to just go to work day in and day out and just give up with the hopelessness of all of it. Dear God, our, our blindness can be so rampant. But Lord, if you've opened our eyes, even a little bit, that is enough. Lord, would you help us as our eyes are open and as we see you just a little bit, would you help us to strain our eyes to want to see you more and more and more until suddenly and finally you are all we see. Lord, be with us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, the only one worthy of our worship. Amen.